I'm just going to pray for him now. Um, and it's going to be a bit of a what I like to call baptismal prayer, um, where we pray for two, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Being the Trinity night, um, I thought it would be appropriate. And then um, I'm sure Nathan's going to go into the theology behind all that. So, yeah, man. <laughs> Didn't realise you were so tall. Anyway. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for this man and we just pray that you just powerfully work in him now and um, you also work in all of us and um, help us to to hear you and um, help us to see in your scriptures um, some amazing truths. Um, yeah, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Zach. Alrighty, uh, can I just get a show of hands? Who's, am I on? Can you hear me? You got me there? Great. Who's been here for the last two Sundays? Okay, a few of you. Okay, that's fine. Who's been here for one of the, one of the two Sundays? Okay, who's here for the first time? Okay, excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, as um, you may or may not be aware, we've been running a mini-series on the doctrine of the Trinity. We've been calling it a, an equipping series. It's been our heart's desire to go a little bit deeper than what we normally would on a, a Sunday morning on some particular doctrines. And, and we, we will probably continue this throughout the year uh, spasmodically. It won't be every Sunday evening, but uh, we, this really has been a trial. And uh, it's been encouraging from my perspective to have the opportunity to prepare this material. And I hope it's been encouraging from your perspective as you've had to endure to listen to it. Uh, so it's a good thing. So that's where we are. We're at our third part of this series. But because I thought there would be a number of you that haven't been to the other two, we're going to do a, a very brief overview for the first uh, 15 or so minutes and then get into what does the Trinity really mean in relation to our salvation? And what does the Trinity mean in relation to our ongoing walk with Jesus? Is there any role? Is uh, it an important part of our journey of faith? And that's where we will get to this evening. And we'll look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1 reasonably extensively in, in that search as a, a foundational cornerstone on the Trinity's role in salvation. As I said, throughout the past two weeks, we've been together and we've started to explore the mystery of the Trinity. And it is a mystery. It's uh, how do we comprehend in our own hearts and our own minds one God yet three persons. That's what we've been trying to wrestle with and trying to get our thoughts around and hopefully in the end it turns us to praise and worship God for who he is. Because whenever we study doctrine or theology, that's the end goal is it gives us an appreciation in our heart to worship and praise God. So we've looked at the historical development of the doctrine and the importance to Christianity of this fundamental doctrine of God. And so we came to the question, well, why has this doctrine, why is it so important? Like the word Trinity doesn't even appear in the Bible. It doesn't even appear. You can go and do a lexical search and you will not find the word Trinity. But you will find as you go through the Old and New Testament the fingerprints of the triune God everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. And as we wrestle with the question, well, why is this doctrine so important? Well, clearly it sets us apart from every other religion. The doctrine of Trinity sets us apart. Because without the doctrine of the Trinity, you do not have a doctrine about Christ. You do not have a, a view of Jesus who is fully God and fully man. You do not have a doctrine about the Holy Spirit who is from eternity past and will go to eternity future is fully divine also. And we would not have a doctrine of the Father. 
You know, for instance, let's consider by way of example the Muslim faith, okay? The Muslim faith say, okay, we believe in Allah. So the Muslims have something in common with us in that they view God as one. But that's where it divides quite radically. Because the Muslims say he is singularly one, he is not begotten by anyone, nor did he beget anyone. Their view of God, therefore, is God is completely removed from us. So word theologians call it, he's completely transcendent. He's beyond us. He sits there in an imperial room judging all that come to him. He's above and beyond creation, completely removed from the creature and creation. So immediately we have a diversion of opinion between the Christian God, Yahweh, the triune God, and the Muslim God, Allah. It's really interesting because Muslims accuse Christians of worshipping three gods. They call that tritheism. And in the Quran, this is what it states in the Quran. I'll read this slowly for you. So believe in God and his apostles. Say not Trinity. Desist. It will be better for you. Glory be to him, far exalted is he above having a son. As stated in the Quran. It's another reason why the Quran is not an inspired word of God. But there in the Muslim religion, they cannot fathom that firstly God could have a son. And they cannot fathom that God could walk this earth. And this Oneness of God for a Muslim draws you to the conclusion that they truthfully cannot say God is love. Because God is not personal. He is transcendent only. He is above and beyond his creation. You see, if God is only singular or just one person then love could not be central to his being. Because if God was just singular, there'd be no one from eternity past for God to love. Therefore, there'd be no need for incarnation. No need for the word becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us and seeing that God loved the world and loved his creation. You see, as Christians, we maintain that one of the primary attributes of God is his love and his mercy. And that can only be expressed through the Trinity. Only love and mercy can be seen as you think through Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past. Sitting down and and making a plan of redemption for you and I. This is a quote from by the name of uh, Michael Reeves who's written a wonderful book called Delighting in the Trinity. If you have an opportunity, you want to read a little bit further about the subject, I'd highly recommend this book. And in there he quoted this. The only God inherently inclined to show mercy is the Father who has eternally loved his Son by the Spirit. Only with this God do such winning qualities as love and mercy rank highly. The reason we stand here and worship a triune God is because of his eternal love. As displayed in sending his son through the power of the spirit. For the sake that we could have relationship. Not have a God that's transcendent above and beyond creation, but a God who's imminent. 
with creation. How's that work when we put our faith and trust in Christ? His spirit dwells within. So we have the transcendence and the imminence of God displayed in the triune nature of God. And for those who put our faith and trust in Christ, it's just marvelous. Just marvelous to consider the richness of this inheritance. Historically, we learned that both the Old and the New Testament affirm the oneness of God. Deuteronomy 6 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Romans uh, 3 29 and 30 talks about, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So we do acknowledge that God is one in essence, but he is three in persons. It's not your typical mathematical relationship. It's not one plus one plus one equals three. That's our incorrect view of looking at the Trinity. It's one plus one plus one equals one. That's the mystery and the beauty of the distinctness of the God we worship. The God who has revealed himself through the pages of Scripture. We've discussed the, probably uh, one of the best uh, definitions of the doctrine is a combination of views from the Apostolic Fathers. See, all these debates took place between 325 and 381 AD. And this is a combination of what they came to understood as the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity affirms that God's whole and undivided essence belongs equally, eternally, simultaneously, and fully to each of the three distinct persons of the Godhead. I'm sorry I haven't put that on your notes or I haven't put it up on the screen because it is a wonderful, wonderful quote. It's in uh, the notes from last week and the week before. I'll read it again just so you can get your heads around it. The Doctrine of Trinity affirms that God's whole and undivided essence. So that's the unity of God. Here are Israel, the Lord God, He is one. That's His whole undivided essence belongs equally, eternally, simultaneously. They're great words, aren't they? Equally, eternally, and simultaneously, and fully to each of the three distinct persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. So what this statement actually tells us is that it starts, we start realizing that the Father, Son, and the Spirit each possess this divine nature equally. They each possess it eternally. They each possess it simultaneously and fully. And when you rip it open, that avoids all sorts of heresy. And we just want to talk very briefly about that, as we've talked a lot about that in the last two weeks, the heresies that came forward at the time that this doctrine was penned. You see, that's why the doctrine was penned, because the church was forming, the church was growing. And people were starting to get the word of God, not in their hands like you and I have it, we didn't get this until about 1200, once the printing press came on board, but they were starting to get fragments, they were starting to hear oral uh, testimonies from men who had been with apostles and men who had had uh, talked about their faith. They were starting to collate together the Bible as we know it. And when that process happened, there were certain forms of heresy that were being propagated. And uh, basically there's four of them. And these are in your notes. I haven't written them down for you. That means you need to listen. But there were, there were four types of heresies which uh, 
form the basis of why we, we've come to the, the point of the Nicene Creed and the Constantinople Creed and our view of what the triune God is. The first one was modalism. Now, modalism proposed that when... He proposed that um, while the Father is fully God and the Son is fully God and the Holy Spirit is fully God, nevertheless, God manifests himself in only one mode at a time. So modalism is, is that thing where the Father was the Father from, I guess, creation to the incarnation. And then God changed modes in some way from the incarnation to the ascension. And then God changed modes again from the ascension to now in his spirit, son, and father. So the heresy in this is, firstly, it makes God a mode. Uh, he's not one in essence. And secondly, it is um, not simultaneously the triune God is not simultaneously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it goes against verses, let's think about the baptism of Jesus. What happened at the baptism of Jesus? The heavens were torn open. The Father declared from the heavens, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And the Spirit descended upon Jesus. That's a simultaneous action, is it? It is. And so you can see why modalism is a heresy. The second one was subordinationism, where the Son and the Spirit were given a lower position to God the Father. So Jesus and the Spirit weren't totally equal with God called subordinationism. Just put sub there for short. You remember the ordinationism. Remember I talked a few weeks ago about to sound really theological, all you've got to do is put an ism on the end of something. All right? So this is what we're doing, subordinationism. But it means it, this is a heresy that was um, condemned because it was trying to say that the Son and the Spirit weren't as divine as the Father. A third uh, heresy that was condemned was adoptionism. And uh, this was a heresy, an early heresy actually, around late 200s, about 280. And uh, this is where they said, oh, can't really wrestle with the issue of Jesus being incarnate. God must have adopted Jesus, must have looked for a man and adopted him and then gave him the divine logos. Gave, gave him the divine word at that adoption. So what's wrong with that? The eternal aspect. The Son, the Father, and the Spirit have been there for eternity. So hence, adoptionism was a heresy that was condemned. And the final one I'll mention, there's more than these, but these are the, the four keys. And Arianism, where a teaching came out early in the church history that Jesus was just a created being. He was the firstborn among creation, but he was just created. So they look at uh, issues like, wow, that was clever. Hey, Good stuff, actually. Did you check, did you check the spelling? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's awesome. So Arianism was uh, where Christ was not equal to the Father. He was created. He wasn't eternal. And our modern day version of Arianism is the Jehovah's Witness. Okay? They take the first chapter of the Gospel of John, they reinterpret it to suit their own means. Instead of saying, we say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Key critical statement 
about Jesus' divinity, that he was there from the creation of the world, from before the creation of the world, from eternity past. Whereas a Jehovah's Witness will take that verse and say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was a God. And then they will take every other particular text that relates to the supremacy and divinity of Jesus and change it. That's Arianism. And it is a dangerous, dangerous doctrine. Dangerous, dangerous doctrine. So they were the four heresies, not the only four, but they were the heresies that were being combated by uh, the early church fathers. And so what happened? They had two councils. They got together and said, we've got to deal with these issues. We've got to put a stake in the ground. What do we actually believe about this? And they wrote some creeds. Now, we're not a church that does creeds very well. Actually, we're not a church that does creeds at all. But that's beside the point. There's a long history of, of creeds that are written for our benefit. And this is one of them. So on the, I think the back side of your page there, you've got the Nicene Creed. So we're going to stand up and we're going to read it. We're going to become very liturgical. And this might be really uncomfortable for some of you, but that's okay. Because this encapsulates the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, so we will read. Let's go. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and indivisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered and was buried. On the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Thanks. So there you go. Now before you throw things at me, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic there is in the universal sense of a universal church. And just remember when this was written. There was no divisions over de denominational lines. That didn't happen to about 800 AD. So it's a great creed. And as, as I've talked through the things that we've talked through, the, the history and the heresy, you can see as they've written this, they've taken really careful attention to, to address these issues. They've addressed modalism. They've addressed subordinationism, adoptionism, and Arianism. They're all there in that creed. Okay. So why then? Why should this doctrine be so significant? Why must we affirm the one God in three persons? And really, practically, what does that mean? What does that mean for you and I as we go into our workplaces tomorrow? As you go into your workplace tomorrow, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, ha, oh, I hope you don't believe in the subordination <laughs> because I tell you, you're wrong. What is the reality of this doctrine in your life? And that's what I want to touch on now for the next 20 or so minutes. I want to spend some time thinking through the role of the triune God in our salvation. I'm going to look at Ephesians chapter 1 to do that. And then uh, we'll conclude by looking at the 
the role of the triune God in our everyday walk. How does that look? So open your Bibles with me and we'll we'll, um, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Leave it open, we're going to spend quite a bit of time in this portion of Scripture. We read this last week, but I've honestly been captivated by this portion of Scripture throughout this week, throughout the three weeks actually. And I don't think I've really done justice to this when it comes to the, the doctrine of the Trinity. So read with me, please. I'm not following it. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I hope you're moved every time you read that. There is deep, deep truth that is unfathomable. And we're going to attempt to unpack this and, and just look, well, what does the triune God do for us according to these verses? You see, as we read through this amazing statement, I'm trying to break it down. There's, there's many more than this, but I just want to give you five things that can be deducted about God's saving work. I'm using God's saving work in the terms of God the triune God and his saving work. We're going to look at the indivisible qualities of his saving work. We're going to look at, he's been bounded by God's electing grace. We're going to look at, it's encompassed by our union with Christ. It's Trinitarian and it's doxological or it gives God glory. So we'll spend time looking at each part of these and I just want to help you come to a position that when we take the bread and wine this evening that we'll just be overcome with worship for our triune God. So the first one was indivisible. Now what do I mean by that? I think the best way to explain is if we go back into the text we, we can see that God's salvation here is in four distinct but interrelated moments. Four distinct but interrelated moments. And it stretches from eternity past to eternity future. And it passes through the history of this world. Let's look at moment one, for instance. In verses four and five, we have that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about God the Father. The Father elected us in Christ. It's not something that happened on a whim. It happened before the foundation of the world. Get a glimpse of that. So in moment one, we have redemption 
predestined. Before anything was created, this plan occurred. Moment two is what I would call redemption accomplished. How is redemption accomplished? We look at verse seven. In him, who's the him relate to? Christ Jesus. From verse five. He predestined us for the adoption of his sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. How? Through his blood. That's redemption accomplished. The cross is the place where the triune God intersected all of humankind and provided redemption. Undeserved, unmerited, incredible. Moment three. We have... So we've looked at redemption, predestined. We've looked at redemption accomplished through him. And now we look at redemption applied. The moment when redemption and forgiveness of sins becomes personally realized in our lives. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood and it's applied. What is applied? Forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. Not according to our merit, not according to what we can place on the table in relation to this transaction. It's got nothing to do with us. This is all a work of the triune God. And through Christ, we have forgiveness of sin. Does that not stir your soul? Remembered no more. Forensically, our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west through the precious blood and forgiveness Christ gives us because of the work of the cross. Not only that, the redemption applied, if you look down in verse 13, in him you also have, you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him and you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So this redemption, this forgiveness of sin, is sealed because the Spirit of God has dwelt within us upon our moment of salvation. That's redemption applied. So moment one, we have redemption predestined. Moment two, we have redemption accomplished. Moment three, we have redemption applied. And moment four, we have redemption consummated. And this is really a combination of the previous two. It's a combination of the redemption applied and the redemption accomplished. Because what these verses tell us, one day, through the power of the Spirit, we have a guaranteed inheritance. We don't enjoy that inheritance now, but we do have a guaranteed inheritance that we will acquire one day through the Holy Spirit who is the guarantor of that inheritance. So that's just how indivisible our redemption is. And you can clearly see the work of the triune God in all aspects, can't you? God the Father elects. God the Son accomplishes and applies. God the Spirit applies and consummates the inheritance. I want to look um, back into the text because the second part of, of this uh, five-part, I guess, key things about God's saving work is that election and predestination is set in motion 
by God's salvation plan. If you look in verse 10, we'll just read in context. We'll start at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he sent forth Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is a wonderful word, this word plan. I love saying it in the original language. It's oikonomia. Sounds like a pig trough. Oikonomia. Okay. So it's a wonderful word, oikonomia, and it's not used very often in the New Testament. Paul uses it three times in Ephesians. He uses it here in verse 10, chapter 1. He uses it in chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 9. You see, this word has two types of meanings. It could mean just the position of office or an administrator, as in the management of a household. So how about you go to your workplaces this week and instead of calling someone an office manager, call them an oikonomia manager. Oh, you're just an oikonomia manager. What? Yeah, administrator. You look after the affairs of the office. You, you make sure the bills are paid. You make sure uh, the wages are paid. <laughs> you make sure that things are in order. That would be a, a general sense. And you'll read in the Proverbs, a couple of the Proverbs talk about, you know how you've got the, the wise manager and the shrewd manager in, 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 the, in the parables, sorry, not problems, in the parables. That's the word oikonomia. It means to manage and to minister well. Uh, that's one sense of the word, but in this sense of the word, we have, this is an activity of administering and arranging an order, a plan, or a strategy. It's a state of being arranged, arranged, order, or plan. And this is God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And it's God's electing grace. And the result of this plan is what? To unite all things under Christ. You see, it's not an activity of administration, but rather it's a unification of all things in Christ, under one head. And that's what these verses tell us, especially the back end of verse 10. In the fullness of time. I don't know when the fullness of time occurs, folks. I don't know. That's God's plan. He's the only one that can determine the fullness of time. He's the only one that can determine his extent of grace upon us. And boy, aren't we glad he's gracious to us. It's in the fullness of time he wants to unite all things in him. In him is in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. The third thing we will look at here in relation to a key thing God's saving work is it encompasses our union with Christ. This is an amazing paragraph. You know, in English, we've got full stops on it. I'm glad I'm not reading the Greek because there is no full stop. Verse 3 to 14 is one long sentence. It's one long sentence. And on 11 times in this one paragraph, you have the phrase, in him, in whom, or through Christ. It's beautiful. Let's think about some of these things. We are chosen in him. We are predestined through Christ. In him we have redemption. In him we have attained our inheritance. Salvation occurs through Christ in union with Christ. It's just marvelous. I I, I encourage you this week to grab hold of this chapter and just look at all the richness of what it means to be in Christ. Look for those terms. It was, it was interesting, a few years ago when we were up in, in Portland, Oregon, um, I had the privilege of doing a, up there they have adult Sunday school classes. So in between the two main services, you have a 45-minute adult Sunday school class, and they do all sorts of things. And I had the privilege of uh, teaching through the book of Ephesians over a 12-week uh, period. And it was, it was wonderful because I gave the class a task. You know, when you're 
sort of back in Sunday school, you give tasks to do, right? It's fun. It's, well, I think it's fun. Even people don't do it, they don't think it's fun. But you give them tasks. And I said, go through the book of Ephesians and find out how many times the term in Christ appears. What a wonderful, rich thing to do. Think over 25 times, 25 and 26 times. There's a key focus, a union with Christ. Fourthly, the saving work of God is Trinitarian. As we've read through this, I I hope you've picked it up. The Father is active in the first moment of salvation. Moment one, he's active. He's electing and he's predestining. The Son secures the second moment. The Son secures the redemption and the forgiveness of sin. The Spirit secures the third and fourth moments. He applies the redemption to us and serves as a guarantee of our future inheritance. Isn't that good news? Salvation is all of the triune God. This is what Ephesians tells me. This is not some theological uh, treatise. This is what the Word of God is telling us as we work through this rich passage. Salvation is the work of a triune God. The Father ordains the plan. He predestines and elects. The Son secures redemption and forgiveness of sin. The Spirit applies that redemption in our hearts and serves as a guarantor for our future inheritance. And finally, one of the other key points in this particular passage is it's doxological. What do I mean by that? Well, it's summarized in three statements. Verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. We read verse 6, we read verse 12, we read verse 14, and this is what it says. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And verse 14, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we require possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's doxological. The ultimate aim of our salvation, folks, is the glory of the triune God. It's the glory of the triune God. That should move us to turn and worship. So, can you see how the Trinity impacts our salvation? How does it impact our walk with the Lord, our everyday walk? You see, not only does the Spirit reveal and inspire the word of Christ and empower the proclamation of the gospel of Christ and regenerate sinners to behold the beauty of Christ and lead us to place our hope and faith in Christ, the Spirit also works mightily in us to conform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. We're not going to have a lot of time to spend on this. Uh, I'll just make a couple of notes here for you. The scripture clearly tells us that the Spirit works in believers to bring about our increasing holiness and restoration. The Spirit works not to make the believer into his own image. So the Spirit's role is not to say, I want you to be more like the Holy Spirit. What is the Spirit's role? I want you to be more like Christ. That's Trinitarian in nature. Sanctification 
and it's clear, or sanctification, the way we walk our faith before the Lord is a clear work of the triune God. As we've discussed, the Father clearly elected us from the foundation of the world in order that we might be holy and blameless. We've read that. And the Father will not fail to bring about our full sanctification. If you looked at 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, it talks about that. I haven't got time to read it. The Son is equally committed to working out this purity and holiness within us. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave herself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church in himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle in any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the Son is vitally involved in our sanctification as well. But the Spirit, as we look through Scripture, seems to be the primary role of the Spirit is to transform us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of a glory to another. You see, the Spirit's working in us as believers, to accomplish the work of the Father, to make his children more and more like Jesus. That's what compels us. That's what compels us when we get miserable in our sin. The Spirit grabs hold of us and and rips at our hearts and starts refining us. The Spirit's role is increasingly to transform us into Christ's likeness. from our initial conversion to our ultimate glorification, the Spirit consistently commends to us the wonder and the glory of the Son. So that's how the Spirit does it. He's not promoting himself. He's focusing us on Christ. The in him. A union with him. The Spirit's illuminating work works in our hearts through the Word of God. We cannot be illuminated and we cannot be transformed without God's Word. This is God's truth. This is what shapes us and refines us. The Spirit of God uses this to transform our hearts and souls. In our sanctification as in all of the works of the Spirit. He seeks to bring honor and glory to the Son, which brings ultimate glory to the Father. And if you turn with me to Ephesians, we'll read the end of the chapter, and we'll see this in action. We'll conclude with this before we worship together further. Verse 16. Verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Paul here 
balance before the Father. He asks that we are strengthened through the power of the Spirit in our inner being. Why? So Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. So we may get a glimpse, just a glimpse, of the width, the breadth, the length, the height of the love of Christ. Just a glimpse. Set your heart's desire just to get a glimpse of that. Love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge. Surpasses our creeds, surpasses our incredibly poor thinking about this triune God. So that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's life indeed. That's my prayer for you. The next time you hear the word Trinity, you won't carry it in the corner and say it's of no relevance. It is of deep relevance to our Christian faith as we grapple with our triune God. As we ask to be ushered by the Spirit to understand the fullness of who He is and whom we worship. And we get an element of that as we look at the bread and the wine. This is our Trinitarian God in action. The Son came to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son came so that we could have redemption, forgiveness of sin. The Son came so we could have an inheritance that's far beyond this world's pleasures and desires. The Son came so the Spirit could work within us to the glory of God. As we break the bread, as we drink the cup, just help yourself and remember the triune God in whom we worship and give him thanks. Let me pray for us and we'll take a time of communion together. Father, we look upon this bread and this wine and we're reminded of your son who you sent or who you planned to send from before the foundation of this world to redeem us. Father, we thank you that your spirit dwells within us and illuminates us and enlightens us to the fact of this truth. Help us to be obedient as we consider the power of the gospel and your grace in our lives. Father, we see these two really simple elements as just an incredible symbol of the atonement that we now have and enjoy because of your great love and your great mercy. Enable us to worship you wholeheartedly. Enable us to consider afresh our salvation. Pray this in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen.